Welcome to episode 34 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. Oh, shit, I do more. I was like, and he's your co-host, Michael Haig. I know, right? <laughs> As always, I am your host, Michael Haig. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. Today, we are going to hit a topic that we actually already did once and then we lost some of the audio file. I wasn't going (laughs) to name any names or anything, but I've always known this was going to happen. Sooner or later I always assumed we were going to end up losing a file. And there for a minute we had a backup but then you trusted us. We did, that's a good point. And I'm not entirely disappointed by that. There are a couple of episodes now where we recorded an episode and I've just basically trash canned it and done it again because I decided that it wasn't done the way I wanted it to be done. And they ended up being better. Right, so they ended up being better. And I'm not saying I would have done that with the last one because there was a lot of actual raw emotion that I thought was valuable, but my personal delivery was at a level where I would have happily trash canned that, so I'm not super disappointed that we're doing it again. So maybe I deleted mine on purpose. (laughs) Maybe. Because it was such a a good friend. It was a super emotionally raw episode for me, if I remember right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I hope it will still get to capture some of that. Or at least you can tell us, oh, that would have been important then. It would have been important, but I'm over it. You can say that helped me. That idea helped me then. So at the end of that episode, also, Mandy decided to to use a label. She said, that was a Michael episode. So I'm going to warn you in advance. This is what Andy and Sarah are calling a Michael episode, which basically means I'm mostly talking. I'm using a lot of big words. A high level concept (laughs) that I think is important. And they're mostly giving feedback on it. Because it's sort of in my wheelhouse. I'm excited. I don't know. I like big words. I'm okay with this. (laughs) I explained our podcast today to somebody that Michael's the educational one. Like, he's the smart one. (laughs) And Sarah and I apply it. (laughs) Yes. We're the peanut gallery. So we talked last week about interconnected problems where you're trying to say something, but it's so enmeshed in so many other things, there's nowhere to start. Right. This is actually part of the major theory of how oppression works and what intersectional feminism is all about is the idea that if things are enmeshed enough, it's almost impossible to talk about one of them without trying to talk about all of them, which makes it impossible to talk about any of them. So at a certain point, you just have to dive in and go, we're just going to talk about this part of it. And it may not make sense, not the other parts, but... We got to do it. So this is going to be one of those topics, and I put off talking about it for as long as I think that I can. This concept underlies everything that we do and is probably the most important concept to me that I have discovered and applied in my lifetime. And I just didn't start with it because out of context, it makes no sense. But I'm hoping that having listened to a season and a half of our podcast, when we explain this, you'll see how it applies retroactively and then be able to apply it going forward. And the upshot is... I think I'm going to go get a pen. That's cool. (laughs) I'm not writing anything down. I'm winging it. Okay, I guess I'll just bite the bullet and go the dangerous route. So the really short up pitch. There's no meaningful semantic content to the words good and evil, and that the use of them and concepts similar to or that reference the concepts of good and evil basically exist to justify harming other human beings. I know that might be a contentious statement, and unfortunately this is one of those inverted pyramid scheme sort of 
sorts of things where we're starting at the top and then working in the other direction. So we're going to try and justify that some over the course of this episode, but I have to start by stating that premise. I think we do that with a lot of our episodes. This is one that's actually become even more important to me as I'm finally raising a child. So my child is now old enough that I have to explain concepts to him. So he's like, why are the police chasing this person in this show? Is he a bad person? And I find myself being really reticent to be like, yeah, he's a bad person and the cops are good guys. Oh, really? (laughs) I totally pegged you to say, well, we don't know if he's a bad person or not, but we (laughs) assume that he's done something bad for the cops to chase him. (laughs) Is that sarcasm? No, that's how I do it. So I assume that's how, (laughs) you know. I use good and bad more often in my conversation, but when my son asks questions like that, it's like, well, here's the thing. If he's broken this social structure that we've set in place, so that's why they're chasing him because that's their job to go and stop this person from breaking those laws. The vast majority of American laws are victimless crimes that cause more harm than they solve. So it's almost guaranteed, I mean, at a statistical gambling man's level, right. that if I were to bet on whether or not a cop is going after someone who did something wrong in such a way that I think they deserve the cop going after them, the answer would be certainly not, right? So we know enforcing traffic laws, for example, increases traffic deaths. We know that enforcing victimless crimes like drug use increases drug use. Yeah. We know that enforcing victimless crimes like prostitution harms everybody and makes everyone less safe. Right. Right. So we know that almost every behavior that police engage in, with the exception of responding to violent crimes specifically, murder, breaking and entering, assault and battery. Sexual assault. I mean, the sexual assault inside of assault and battery sure. is in that umbrella, but mm-hmm. if you want to knock that out of the separate category. Other than like those direct interactions, which are the vast minority of, if you look at years served in prison, most of the hours and years served in prison sentences are for victimless crimes. Right. Right. I do not doubt that. Yeah. But on the other side, you know, my initial response was to be like, stay away from cops. Cops are the violent arm of the state and they are dangerous. And then my partner was like, well, what happens if he gets lost or kidnapped? Then he's not yeah. going to go to a police officer. Yeah. Right. And we know that one of the major reasons that people don't escape being lost or kidnapped is because they're scared of going to the police yep. because they're the person that kidnaps them says, if you go to the police, the police will blame you. Yep. If mm-hmm. you go home, your parents will blame you. Now, granted, I don't think that since that system is so successful, I don't know that me telling him otherwise before something happens to him bad would really save him because they use a brainwashing system that says like your parents won't accept you now if you come home because you're dirty and have done horrible things, which by the way is interesting because it's part of the same moral language. They use this moral language to trap people. <laughs> right? If you ever watch any documentaries about those sorts of kidnapping rings, they use the language of basically saying you've become tainted, you've right. become bad, you've become dirty. You can never go home again because you're not worthy of being home anymore. Right. So they're using the same moral language that I'm saying basically only exists to harm people to harm people, which is not against my case in any meaningful way. Mm-hmm. The short version is we have agreed for now to tell him that police will help him because they will help a very small, very cute white child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what how I explain police to my children too. I'm like, you're lucky <laughs> yeah. that you're white, they'll help you. That's yeah, and when they get older, we'll explain the difference. Right. So my, my oldest son is an addict. And we've been dealing with his addiction for the better part of six years now. And I have two younger children who are eight and ten years younger. At the height of his addiction, they were not so much of the age to understand exactly what addiction was. Mm -hmm. And I had to explain to them over and over again, because of course they had people from the outside saying different things, that their brother wasn't a bad person. He just made bad decisions. 
Mm-hmm. And the things sure. that he were he was doing were bad things, but it didn't make him a bad person. So it was about it was it was around that time when I started to use that language because uh-huh. I knew somebody who fell in that category that I was trying sure. to defend on a regular basis. Right. So I had to learn that language. When you didn't have better language yet either. Right. Because that's that we're gonna find out it's a really bad language. Right. Yeah. But it was better than saying, Yeah, your your brother's a shithead. You know, you know what I mean? Like it was sure. It, right. it was they yeah. knew their brother wasn't a bad person. They right. they knew That's the right. heart of their brother, so they knew he wasn't a bad person. Then of course that broadened to people in general. Mm-hmm. As a whole, people aren't bad people. Right. Mm-hmm. The the people that we consider bad people that we hear that are bad people, they've just made bad decisions. Mm-hmm. They've made the wrong decisions. So that's when I started using that language. I definitely use it more often now mm-hmm. than I would have had I not been faced with the circumstances that we were faced with. So that taught me that. Sure. And to go ahead and to introduce this language now to make it easier for all of us for this conversation, I use the language of harmful and pro-social in place of bad and good. Okay. Mm-hmm. So pro-social, if you don't know, is the term people use when they're studying, like anthropologists will use when they're studying cultural groups to see if the behavior in average helps the group and not just the individual. Most morality is based on pro-social behavior and pro-sociality. As a general rule, behaviors that only help yourself are not generally considered pro-social unless they help yourself in the kind of way that's pro-social, like self-care. Self-care is pro-social because it makes you the best version of yourself so that you can help other people and be part of your community that sort of thing yes otherwise it's sort of morally neutral right if you're just doing things that help you but in no way helps anybody it's hard to call that ethically positive which is what pro-social does the work of here shaving my legs is neutral <laughs> right yeah. sure and then <laughs> i used to originally describe it with pro-social and anti-social which are technically the correct anthropological terms but that gets confusing because people think of anti-social to mean one of two other things because uh-huh. there's the psychological definition of anti-social which means having a twisted moral compass yeah and there is the common common definition of antisocial meaning not liking to socialize. Right. right. So that just gets way too gray. And harmful is better at what I'm aiming at anyway. Mm-hmm. To re-describe your scenario, you're dealing with a person who is a kind person with pro-social aims who keeps making harmful decisions that are self-harmful yes. and harmful for others. Yes. We use self-destructive a lot. Yeah. Self-destructive. Yeah. Sure. I like playing with these terms because they're like right up my alley. Like, yeah, these terms I hear from school. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> And we know, right, from the example, we've brought this up before, but again, in Portugal, which had the worst drug rates and worst drug-related crime rates, so by drug-related crime, I mean robbing people, killing people, enforcer crimes, etc. Their eventual solution was to legalize all drugs and take all of the money that the government made from selling those drugs and put them into free rehabilitation clinics that are available to their entire population, or really, I think, anybody. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I love that. It's so... Go on. And over the course of, I think it's now 13 years, they've, it's just, it's insane. They, they've lowered the usage of drugs and drug-related crimes have all both fallen like 80 to 90%. Like they have one of the lowest rates, if not the lowest rate in the world. And it's really weird because we already had the research when they started doing this because that's how they did it, right? So they went to their, their scientists and said, what could we do? And they said, basically, what causes people to do drugs is a sense of social isolation. Mm -hmm. So when the response to people doing drugs is 
is to socially isolate them, you create a system that there's no escaping. Yep. It just gets worse. Yep. Your family cuts you off because they're scared of being around you because they're afraid that they'll get arrested or that their life will be destroyed or that you'll drag them down with you. Or socially affected. There's no help because we make you pay for incredibly difficult and expensive programs. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's no help to get you out of that system. Mm-hmm. So you just get buried. And it can easily be a thing like you tried a drug for the first time ever and just got caught on your way home and now you become a drug addict for life. You know, and you are never even going to head that trajectory. So society is creating its own problem by criminalizing and attacking and going after these users. Mm -hmm. And you should treat drug addiction like a disease, like a mental disorder, rather than like a crime. Yes. Amen. Because nobody grows up. Nobody is a child says... Damn, I want to be a drug addict when I grow up. No teenager wants to be an addict. No adult wants to be an addict. Yeah. Right. (sighs) This topic, I feel like I I have so much of my heart in this topic. I mean, I have had drug issues with people I'm close with, and uh, I just, ah, it it ain't right. And so much of what we just talked about is so true, and I don't understand why so much of Western, Eastern, any culture does not get that it will help to do what Portugal has done. It's the stigma. I mean, you're seeing things moving that way, right? I mean, we're we're certainly moving towards trying to legalize marijuana in America and, and potentially, you know, decriminalize previous things but we're not we're not on that that's an example of what we're on for today we gotta yeah sorry because we could get off on the sub examples forever unfortunately yes the upshot is that the way that we can have a cultural group that does this and not feel horribly guilty about ourselves every single day is this moral language it's the evil mm-hmm. yeah the good and bad so when i say moral language i mean words that either mean good or bad or would have what i would call a good or bad valence which means that when you hear the word you know that it's describing someone as good or bad so for example someone who is Thrifty has a morally positive valence, whereas somebody who is a tightwad has a morally negative valence. Mm-hmm. So even though those words aim at a similar concept of not spending a lot of money, they also include the moral judgment inside of them. Part of the reason why if you immediately were like, what, there's absolutely good and bad in the world when I said there wasn't good and bad in the world, that you might want to consider that, is that there is nothing that you can think of that I cannot find you a culture that used to think that that was good if you think it's bad. At some point, yep. Mm-hmm. There's something that's good that I can't find a culture that thought it was bad. There's no thing that I can't flip on you. Yeah. And so for one of the examples, there are African cultures where the color you wear to funerals is white because bones are white and bones are death. Mm -hmm. And the color you wear to indicate life is black because skin is black and skin is life. Yeah. Those are some sort of culturally created elements. But so one of the things that people will always say when you say, oh, there is no good and bad. It's like, oh, every culture hates murder. Every culture hates theft. Cool. Let's analyze those words for a second. Right. Because what does murder mean? Right. It means wrongful killing. But what is wrongful is so different from society to society. So, for example, up until 100 years ago, not only was calling someone out in a duel acceptable, Mm, it was basically morally required. You know, if someone said some mean stuff about your partner, you kind of had to call them out and have a gun duel with them or a knife duel or a sword duel, or you were a bad person who wasn't defending your partner's honor appropriately. Even in current culture, in today's culture in the U.S., murder is not agreed upon by any by everyone. Right. Capital punishment. Right. Is capital punishment murder? Is abortion murder? Yeah. It just means justified killing. And usually every culture has some killing they consider justified. Right. Like our culture, American culture, which likes soldier culture a lot, generally doesn't think of acts of war as murder for some reason. Right. So 
So when we declare war on another country and then go kill half their population, like that's not murder. No murderers. Those aren't those are heroes. Those are freedom fighters. Which is also weird because most people who we would we then label murderers actually use the term freedom fighter, right? So most of the worst groups in countries that are warlord countries have a name like mm-hmm. the so and so freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. Of course, they are going to say the same thing that they're heroes. So the point is that that's not a hardly universal. You're you're hiding it inside the language, okay. right? The person saying, "Oh, well, that's murder." That's not murder. It's just a reflection of your cultural mm-hmm, group. Right. What is true is that every culture condones some types of killing, but almost no two cultures condone the same types of killing. Right. There's always some killing that's condoned and some killing that's condemned, and it's never the same stuff. And murder itself just has a negative connotation to it. Right. And so the point is that that's not even a moral absolute. And of course, also, neither is theft. Like, we've created the idea of intellectual property laws, for instance. Which is a nice law. It is an absolutely horrible, atrocious system that I can do, like, three courses on why it's just repugnant. Okay, then I'm just naive. My bad. Yes. America spends a lot of time basically trying to force the entire world to believe in intellectual property laws and even moralize them like you did. And I don't mean that negatively. I mean, that's what you were taught since you were born, is that intellectual property laws are great. Without intellectual property laws, no one would create anything of meaningful value. Right. And it protects the artists. And Let's not forget that the vast majority of everything ever made was made before intellectual property laws, for instance. And people still made things, as it turns out. The other problem is that it assumes that everything has to be on a model where you have to invest up front to create the material and then you get paid back afterward. This is a very problematic model that privileges people who already have wealth. As we've discussed before, part of the reason that, for example, we can do this podcast is that none of us are currently starving to death. And so we can afford to do this podcast for free and then if we can get paid off of it at some point, do more work. And that's a problem. There's a lot of other systems. I'm not going to get into other economic theories, but there's a lot of very viable systems that have been proposed that there's lots of good evidence would work and America focuses on intellectual property laws because intellectual property laws is a great thing for capitalism because they can be bought and sold directly. Mm. Yep, and it protects the rich. And it's super problematic. Like, if you guys don't know how problematic intellectual property laws are, I'll be really quick with this one. It's just, I can sum it up with just Mickey Mouse. (laughs) Michael, I know how problematic intellectual (laughs) property laws are. Patents last for 15 years, okay? A patent is when you create a new invention of some variety. You have exclusive use to it for 15 years once you patented it. Copyrights last for 80 years after the death of the originator. Wow. If you write a book, that book will be owned by your descendants for 80 years after your death, making the average copyright last something like 130 years now. They used to last like 10 years after the death of the author until good old old Mickey Mouse... (laughs) was about to come into the public domain. Yeah, interesting. And then Disney went and donated, like, it's a ridiculous amount, like $100,000 to $200,000 to every senator on the commission that creates copyright law. And they created a new law Mm -hmm. that decided to increase it to the death of the author plus 40 years. Until Until it was was about to come out of copyright again. And they did it again. And it's it's on record. You can just see that Disney straight up bought off Congress twice. They just took $10 million, went to Congress, and just bought it. And they'll do it again. And now it's 80 years plus 
the death of the author. And besides the fact that that's just ridiculous, the other thing is both of these law changes, of course, because they were for Mickey Mouse, applied retroactively, right? And the whole claim is people won't make new things if they can't make money off them. Well, if that's the claim, you don't need to apply that retroactively because those people already made stuff. So if the whole point is you're incentivizing people, you could have just extended the law without having it include stuff that had already been made. Right. Because most of the time you don't make laws retroactive. That's interesting. And it can't possibly have a motivational effect on something that's already been finished. That's impossible. Right. Right. So, and it only applies to people who are dead. So there's no way dead people are going to be like, oh, I need to make more stuff. Wait, did we just give dead people more rights? (laughs) Yeah. And so we are at a point where there's a substantial portion of books that are so old that they only exist in paper format, but they're less than 80 years after the death of the author. But you can't find who owns them anymore, and you can't copy them legally, so they're being lost. They're molding and rotting and disappearing, and there's no way to copy them or save them, because the copyright lasts so long that the physical copies will all be gone (laughs) before you're legally allowed to copy them. Thanks, Walt. (laughs) So, no, copyright law and patent law, which Americans love, are a really great way to keep down other countries, especially developing countries. So countries that don't have the level of capital we have have almost no way to compete against developed intellectual properties that are 130 years old or or patent thickets or, right, you don't know what patent thickets are? You guys know Gillette and how they're mm-hmm. always coming out with like the seventh blade razor, the eighth blade razor? Right. Well, in addition to the razors they actually release, Gillette has something like 72 similar patents about every kind of sort of similar razor so that if you try and invent any kind of razor they'll they're close enough to one of their fake patents they can sue you so they're not even using them they're just patenting everything that they can potentially like so you can write a patent up for so not even not even that you can't use it so that they'll have something close enough to whatever you design that they can claim you copied them yeah. mm-hmm. so there's these impossible mazes that stop other people from even entering the field of razor production like it's almost impossible to make razors because of these sort of patent things <laughs> so no those are not morally positive things those are things that are helpful for rich people in America and other super wealthy countries that harm people in general. They are harmful behaviors. Yeah, that's right. They're harmful. They would be <laughs> antisocial or harmful in the language that we're using as opposed to pro-social. They don't serve the functions they pretend to serve, for instance. Mm-hmm. And they're not even aiming at those functions because if they were, they'd be structured completely different. Yeah. Yeah. The question that I'm always really fascinated by is why are people so very attached to these concepts of good and evil, bad and good, when, as far as I can tell, they're always harmful even to the people engaging in them? Right. Of course, like most things, the thing that survives is just the thing that's self-reinforcing. It's not necessarily the thing that's morally or socially superior. Most of prehistory before the agriculture revolution we now know was mostly peaceful that you don't find a lot of murder skeletons from that time frame murder skeletons one of the most famous guys, I forget his name, but they found him in the Alps, had like an axe cut in the back of his skull. So we know he was murdered by somebody. <laughs> Murder skeletons are just, it's just a funny <laughs> term. Sorry. <laughs> but what we mostly find is we find that in the evidence that we can find that in pre-agrarian societies, when two groups met, they usually shared food, helped each other, and then went their separate ways. They did, the, they did the booty dance, too. Oh, they did the booty dance. They traded partners. They yes. switched genetic material around. <laughs> and then they moved on. They said, here's some food. Let's do the booty dance. I'll see you later. <laughs> and the why is pretty obvious. Without refrigeration, you can't keep your food. Truth. 
if I've got food and you don't have food, it's going to rot. If we both got food, but they're different food, I like variety. Let's just swap some bunch of food. But there's no real value. And, you know, if I haven't, if I'd had a bad season and I haven't found food in a while and you've got food, that might save my life. But it, it can't help you. Keeping it can't help you. Nope. But I'll give you the booty dance for some of that food. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair trade. You know, so you didn't see a lot of that. And if you look at hunter-gatherer religions, religions where the community is less than 150 people, the religions tend to be focused on understanding the way that the natural world works to give you the maximum chance of surviving it. So, like, when the big tsunami happened in India, one of the things that was fascinating is they have all these islands off of India that are protected from people going to them that are, like, low or no human contact islands where, like, indigenous people Mm -hmm. still live. And almost none of the indigenous people died during the tsunami. And so the islands that they do talk to, they went out and they were like, what what happened? And they were like, well, we have a legend that says when the ocean pulls away from your island, go to the highest point. We don't know why. It hasn't come up in, like, 300 years. But but it's in our religion. Our religion (laughs) says... When the ocean runs away, you run to the top of the mountain. Right. And then the tsunami rolled underneath them and didn't hurt anybody because they were all on top of their mountains. Yep. Because the thing that your religion is concerned about is how to survive the natural world and encoding those warnings into your into your religion. And you see some of that in modern religions. Like if you think about like the no pork and no shellfish rules in Judaism, for instance, there was a long period of time where those meats often caused food poisoning or kill people. So by encoding it into your religion that God hated it, which is also reasonable if every time you eat pork, you get food poisoning and die. Like clearly God doesn't God want you to do you that. God hates you then, yes. Yeah, God, <laughs> God just smote you for eating that pork. Right. That's a very reasonable thing to do. But when groups start creating agricultural groups where they don't have to move around anymore and the group size exceeds 150, then you start seeing religions where the the mythos is very concerned with justice, very concerned with retribution, goodness and evil, and making sure that everyone gets their comeuppance. Because suddenly you don't know everybody and you're really worried they're ripping you off. You're really concerned that that guy over there is stealing from you. But also importantly, once you have material wealth in a physical form, grain, which can stay fresh for years, or money, which you can use to buy food from other cultures, suddenly murdering the group next to you is very valuable. So you need the ability to moralize killing people to take their stuff. And by need, I mean the groups that did that were more successful than the groups that got murdered and had their stuff taken. (laughs) I don't mean that it was ethically better. I don't mean that it even made their lives better, because we've talked before about how objectifying others objectifies yourself and actually makes your own experience of life worse but in this case they were more successful at having children so the breeding was more successful for the groups that found a way to create structures that allowed them to without feeling guilty about it kill other people and take their stuff and there were less murder skeletons <laughs> now now well now there were way more murder skeletons well not in that right, the... but in that in that group there were less because they figured out how to kill other people no, they probably were more in that group too still. Oh. Because once once you create the system that allows you to tell like to decide when someone deserves to die. Then everybody deserves to die. Right. <laughs> but yeah, everybody is applicable then. Yeah, and it becomes a, a it becomes an option, right? So in most hunter-gatherer societies, the absolute highest punishment is banishment, which in most hunter-gatherer societies doesn't amount to death because most of them have enough skills to survive being banished. Right. Like the idea that, that you have the right to kill someone in your tribe for almost anything is foreign to them, generally speaking. So once murdering people is an appropriate response, it becomes an appropriate response inside the society as well, unfortunately, which is why you see such high murder rates in developed countries. Then, interestingly, 
in a more recent term, which is why you're starting to see Europe go atheistic, when you reach a level of societal organization where there's pretty good reason to believe that everyone will be held more or less accountable, like they'll have to pay taxes, they'll have to participate in the system, then you don't see the desire for a punitive religion anymore, right? So a lot of the religions that have held successful sway for a long time are declining now because once you don't need God to hold people accountable to feel like the world's going to work, once you have... When society holds them accountable, yeah. Then you don't also desire to be held punished and accountable by some weird vengeful God. My, my mind is like blown. You just never <laughs> connected those two things? That's awesome. The upshot is that what moral language allows us to do is it allows us to determine who is a person and who's not. Or the worth of a person. And by determine, I mean lie to ourselves. Right. So one of the claims that existentialism is going to make is that because a person is a living possibility that could change and do any new thing tomorrow, you can never know the worth of a person until they're dead. So it's inauthentic, meaning lying to yourself, to say that you have some mythical insight into the value of a person. And constructs of language like good and evil allow us to think we have those constructs because they allow us to structure them as absolutes. That's an evil person. Right. So it's not a person that engages in harmful or self-destructive behaviors. That is a person who is evil or bad, and thus all of their behaviors are harmful. And so they're never going to change or become better. They deserve what they get from their behaviors. The other thing that's interesting, and this is necessary for those philosophical perspectives, is that you see a movement away from predestination in religions towards free will. Because the idea of free will is a necessary linchpin in someone deserving being killed. Yep. Okay. Or deserving being robbed. Or deserving being imprisoned. Or deserving being enslaved. Because if God told you to do it, then you don't get murdered for it. Someone can't deserve to do something that they didn't choose to do. Right. So uh, I think you all know, if you don't, almost all ancient religions included the construct of predestination and usually cyclical predestination. So like the world is a cycle that just repeats over and over again yeah. in some sort of construct. Okay. And what you were going to do was always set up as what you were going to end up doing. And so you need to move to this concept of free will in order to be able to judge somebody. And I don't want to do a whole episode on, well, I do want to eventually do a whole episode on free will. So we're not going to try and cover free will here because it's far too big. Free will is far too big. And here by free will, I just mean that people's decision is somehow non-causal. So if you have a different version of free will, that's fine. Maybe your version makes sense. But by non-causal, I mean doesn't happen through an automatic chain of causality, which would exempt it from predestination, right? So if you think that human beings are made like everything else in this universe out of the laws of physics and matter, and that therefore our actions are caused to happen by the things that have happened before us, then it's very difficult to blame a person for going down a bad path or a harmful path. Whereas if you believe in the kind of free will, like only you are responsible for your own actions, you believe in non-causal free will. You believe that somehow humans are the only entity on this planet with the magical capacity to opt out of being causal beings when they're making decisions. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. I'm processing. <laughs> Does anyone want to push back on my on that claim from me? No. I, I need you to keep going. Okay. I'm kind of like, I'm just like hung out right now. Like, I, I need you to keep bringing me back in. I'm with you, Mandy. <laughs> go on. Okay. So to go back to the drug use metaphor. Okay, wait, stop. Dogs. Dogs? Okay. Sure. Do dogs have free will or are they causal? In this context, everything is causal. In the grouping of religions whose mythos I'm talking about, or life philosophies if you're atheist but have a similar life philosophy, people are the only non-causal entity, right? So it's the reason why people don't call, like, animals 
evil. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, my dogs are assholes, and they choose to be assholes. <laughs> right, and sometimes people will. People will be like, oh, that dog's evil. But then someone else will be like, well, it's not really evil, it's just a dog. Yeah, I got it, I got it. Like, it didn't choose to be angry. I don't think that my dogs are shitty dogs. They just make shitty decisions. <laughs> okay, well, you, you have... Highly anthropomorphized your dogs, which is fine because my general stance is that humans are not as far from other animals as people think they are. But you you understand the average person treats yes. a dog like a computer, right? Like that yes. people chain dogs outside to guard their houses because they're right. not humans. They're less than. They're just yeah. technology, basically. But the, at the same time... Like, they just treat the dog's behaviors as being evolved. Like, people will say, like, oh, it's all instinct for a dog. Or that's just the kind, like, I bought a dog and it just happened to have a bad personality. They won't be like, my dog makes terrible decisions and is an immoral dog. As a general rule, you won't hear people say that sentence. My dogs are definitely, they choose to be assholes, I'm <laughs> telling you. <laughs> but in the same token, we used to chain people outside, too. But we use the same language to accomplish that. Right. Exactly. Right? We use the same kind of language to say, like, well, they're not really people. They're this lower class right. of people. For whatever reason, either because they're a different tribe or because we beat them in a war or because of race. Whatever the justification of the day was, we used this sort of language, this moralizing language, to create a system that allowed us to view them as Dogs. deserving of, well, yes. deserving of this treatment either because they had free will and acted badly or because they didn't have free will, but we did. There are other ways to do this. There have been other ways to do this. But in, you know, American culture that I grew up in, free will is used to justify anything that happens to you, right? So you ended up poor, you ended up hurt, you ended up in a dead-end job, you ended up a drug addict, you ended up whatever. It's all free will. Yeah, sure, you had shitty circumstances, but with your free will, you could have been a millionaire. You could have changed that, yeah. This is such a problem, there's actually a, a term for this. It's called American exceptionalism, which is the idea that by pointing to one person who went from being incredibly impoverished to being incredibly rich, like people will be like, Oprah exists, Therefore, everyone could be a millionaire. So the only reason you're poor is you, is the American exceptionalism claim. Well, you just didn't try hard enough. And they use specific examples of people who've done well to prove that it can happen. And of course, this is not proof that it can happen for everyone. And we've talked about this before. We've talked about the amazing circumstances that were necessary for Bill Gates to be Bill Gates, etc. But the bottom line is that an incredibly small number of people move through the ranks in America. The, it's like 80% of people will die in the social class they're born into in America. Wow. Something incredibly high, right? So yeah, there's some fluidity. Some people go up, some people go down. But for the most majority of us, whatever you were born into is where you're going to die. And in fact, and here's one I can actually link an article to. I recently read an article. I think the name's called something like Believing in the Meritocracy is Bad for You. So if you don't know by now, there's just plenty of studies that prove that America is in no way a meritocracy. Doing well, doing a good job, caring being the best at what you do are not the primary factors in your success in America. This article was interesting because it was looking at specific research that shows both that believing in the meritocracy is stressful because every time anything bad happens to you, you're like, I'm a terrible person and you internalize and moralize it on yourself. And also because you're a less moral person because you basically think that everything bad that happens to anyone is their fault and therefore you never try and help anybody because you're like, that's you. So this is all backed up by this language, right? Because if you're using language like pro-social, harmful, and you're using constructs like causal universe, then you have a real hard time being like, 
Bill Gates is a great person because he made it wealthy from, well, he started wealthy, yeah, middle class to wealthy anyway, and then gave lots of money to charity. Yeah. You have to have a completely different set of language. Like Bill Gates was born into a place where he had the opportunity to take advantage of his father's connections at IBM and his edu- middle class education, middle class Ivy League education to produce a program that allowed him to mm-hmm. control the market for a very long time siphon off labor from millions of other people that were not him and then hoard enough wealth that he basically owns the wealth of a country and then give a very small portion of that back to the people he farmed it from in the form of positive things right and then you have to say okay well is he a good person (laughs) well it, it doesn't matter right his behaviors are obviously harmful demonstrably that's why he lost a series of bad lawsuits but one of which being a monopolistic powers lawsuit which is in general in business kind of the worst thing you can do besides directly embezzling people to create monopolies we've been at this for quite a long time so now i need to start bringing it around to the point or back to the point right because i started with here's my premise good and evil are words people basically use to engage in harmful antisocial behaviors and at a certain point in time, that was evolutionarily beneficial. It, those people did better than people that didn't do that because they took advantage of other people, which were functionally resource caches. But a long time ago, we moved past that point. So at the level of human density we have, at the level of societal structure that we have, this sort of us versus them modality cannot benefit the vast majority of us. It can only benefit the people on top. Yeah, okay. Because the only them it's going to be other us from a statistical perspective. You know, so if you look at the us versus them that's going on in America right now, it's one group of poor people versus another group of poor people, while the rich people can keep all the wealth themselves regardless of the outcome. Yep. Right, and what we need to be focused on is how to get to a place where every person has the basic human dignity that we were all born deserving Mm -hmm. and the basic access to healthcare, food, housing, safety, protection, care that we all deserve and need. What? Did you just list human rights? <laughs> not according to most people. <laughs> a lot of people do not think medical care is a human right, for instance, which is bizarre to me. Yeah, totally bizarre. And it is. It is, actually. It's statistically, it's cheaper than the current system. Yeah. Which is what kills me. But like, oh, insurance companies are so much better than a single-payer system. And I was like, well, the single-payer system doesn't, you know, keep half of the money to give to their yeah. CEO and their stockholders. Right. So you're basically just paying paying twice, once to the doctors and once to the medical, to the insurance company every time you pay for stuff right now. How could that possibly be? doesn't matter. There's lots of statistics. If you don't understand how healthcare works, please just go Google universal healthcare. Look at other countries that have it. It's a whole bunch cheaper. There's a bunch of other podcasts out there to listen to. It's such a bad (laughs) system right now. Just a quick throw out note if you want it. I was talking to someone about how our system's so messed up that people are hopping the border into Canada to get better drugs. And people were like, well, how does that work? Canada doesn't cover people who aren't from Canada. That's true. But their, their group negotiation is so successful that their drug costs are so low that it's cheaper to buy most drugs in Canada at cost. Not with insurance. Yeah. Than it is to buy them in America with insurance. (laughs) That's how messed up that system is. So I've said before that if there was one thing I could teach everyone, it would be that we are all one group. We're all one species, one group, and humans are not a zero-sum game. We always do better as a group. It's the reason we're so social. I was looking at a study the other day that says that now the major theory for why we developed larger brains 
was to be able to talk to each other. Hmm. It wasn't for hunting. It wasn't for any other reason. Other large social primates engage in social grooming to maintain group cohesion. So the exact same time that human bands got larger on average than the amount of time you could actually socially groom the whole group is when we developed language. Language just replaced social grooming. So before, to make sure that everyone around you knew that you didn't hate them, you had to like pull ticks off their body and stuff and like pet them and be like, hey, we're friends. But at a certain size of of community, if you're like 40 people, can you imagine how long it would take you to socially groom 40 people a week? Like you would do nothing else. You would not have time to find food you would not have time to be successful so we needed something to replace that socially grooming me does still though let me know you like me <laughs> yes I'm just same here <laughs> comb my hair please sure social grooming is still a thing that that primates love and we are primates pet me and brush my hair <laughs> but also for people that you don't know quite as well being like hi how are you how are the kids much more appropriate is the ritual that replaces the social grooming activity right so our entire ability to even speak speaks to the fact that larger groups were more successful for humans the bigger the group the better we do cities our biggest groups are also per capita our Mm -hmm. biggest producers of wealth and value humans just do better the more of us there are together working together full stop and given that that's the case this idea of we have to get rid of that group and we have to pull in this group and we need to get rid of that group we need to pull in this group is just ludicrous and self-damaging and it's just the people on top keeping the people beneath them fighting so that they can stay on top Mm -hmm. that's that's all it is That's all it is. It's the rich people going, you over there, fight amongst yourselves. We're going to stay here and be rich. And so we've been using these very high level, big examples, but this is a show about ethics and interpersonal relationships. So let's pull it back down to that level. How does this apply to poly, Michael, or interpersonal relationships? (laughs) Glad you asked. So the answer is that before I have used this sort of stand-in spot where I'll say, you should assume that the people you're in a relationship with are trying to do good things for you, but just don't know how to do those things. And now I'm going to say, you should just assume people people are trying to do good things. And here I'm going to say pro-social things. People are trying to be pro-social and just are failing at that. People aren't inherently harmful to one another. I know there's a lot of people that like to talk about how much of like jerks kids are, how selfish kids are. And that may all be true, but kids also very deeply want to help the people around them. (laughs) More than any anything else. If you tell a kid they cannot help, if you tell a kid they are not helpful, if you tell a kid they're mean, harmful, hurtful, you will break that child's heart. That's like the worst thing you can say to them. Kids are assholes because of the environment and the people that are around them that taught them to be assholes. Yeah, my kid is like the sweetest child. Your kid is like the sweetest child. Like the sweetest person. (laughs) My kid is just incredibly sweet because we've raised him with these sorts of values that we have not raised with any other stuff. But I used to love teaching. Like I taught pre, I I was like a preschool assistant teacher for like a summer or two. And the three-year-old, four-year-old class were just, they were great. Even the kids whose like parents were jerks, like the kids were still really, even though they'd act up a little bit, once you gave them like just a chance to be kind, Mm -hmm. if you were like, oh, if you did this, you would be kind. They're, they're just, they're into it. They're on it. No human being ever wants to be the bad guy. No human being ever wants to be the person that hurts someone by default. Yeah. Now we have trauma and we have a world that tells you it's a zero-sum game and we have people that tell you to be a man means to like punch other men in the face and take their stuff. And so people develop those habits until they become core personality traits. So I'm not saying that you can't run into a person on the street that now enjoys hurting other people. I am saying... They had to be trained to do that. They were taught to do that, yeah. It was very difficult to train them to do that, and it would actually be really easy to train them not to do that. If given the chance... 
the training would turn around. Which is what we know from countries that actually have rehabilitation-based prison programs. Mm. They're incredibly successful. Their recidivism rate is incredibly low. Like, nobody wants to be a criminal. Nobody wants to be thought of (laughs) as garbage by their family. Nobody wants to be predatory. Mm -hmm. These are not human desires. We are a social animal. And I know, I know, there's like 1% of people are sociopaths or something. So they might have a screw loose that makes it hard for them to feel those things. And maybe that's true. But those are mental illnesses. Yes. Yeah, that's a mental illness. Yes. But also, humans are so good at producing together... By virtue of being human. ...that you cannot give up the production benefit of 99% of us us working together to stop the 1% of freeloaders. We actually produce so much extra... But we could easily float that 1% of freeloaders and still all be better off. Mm-hmm. So when we start like creating little kingdoms and be like, mine, you can't have it and I won't share and we won't work together. That is what causes people to lose wealth, not floating the one guy who is either won't or can't work. Which is the same thing, which is if you realize you live in a causal universe, the paraplegic and the person who has mental disorders that don't allow them to participate in society are kind of the same deal. But our society says one of those is evil and taking advantage Lazy. of us, and one of those is had something bad happen to them and needs help. And that's just, there's there's no point. It just, it is never helpful. There's no way to do it. No society does it consistently. Consistently, what counts constantly changes. So there's two huge takeaways from this that are important. Well, four or five, I don't know. What are the takeaways? Here are the takeaways. One, we don't live in a meritocracy. How successful you are is not how good you are. And how productive you are isn't how valuable you are. You have a unique and valuable human life. You are a living possibility that could create any number of outcomes. And that in itself is valuable and deserves basic accommodation in the forms of food, support, love, safety, health. You are pro-social. Yeah. Everyone else is not out to get you. They are not evil. They're not trying to hurt you. They're confused. They are attempting to be pro-social, but they are ending up producing harmful behaviors, not intentionally. They may be doing them because they think that they're pro-social in some sort of system like if you've been convinced this world's a zero-sum game, then me cheating you so that I can earn extra money to give to my child who needs protecting so that he has food actually is a pro-social action, right? I'm trying to provide for children. I have been taught that the best way to do that is by stealing from other people. My goal is still pro-social, even though the outcome is actually harmful and antisocial. What about the partner that cheats on their other partner? I have not had a discussion with the cheating member of a polyamorous group yet. I know that happens. I I haven't had a discussion with that cheater. So these cheating examples are going to come out of some monogamous scenarios. And so some of the reasoning will be monogamous reasoning. But I think it's all fairly close. Well, this this one won't be really, I guess. Because you have a person that is cheating on a partner who they like, who they have children with who they have shared property with, who they have a life with, with somebody else. They like both of the people. And when you ask them, you know, why they're cheating, their answer is something like, well, this one person is my family. I don't want to leave my kids. Mm -hmm. I don't want them to lose their father. I enjoy being with this person. I want them to be around them and me. But this other person makes me happy. And without them, like, I'll be miserable and I'll be a bad parent and I'll be a bad partner and I'll just be sad and feel trapped. And then you say, well, why don't you just tell them? And they'll say, well, neither of them would ever go for that. Mm-hmm. So they're just trying to make the best out of a bad no-win scenario. They're in love with two people. Yeah. Each of those people provides value and they don't know how to participate in that scenario because they live in a world where neither of those people would accept the option of being polyamorous because they've been conditioned to believe that that's automatically bad and unacceptable. So someone that's cheating is just trying to make themselves happy 
They may not be going about it the best way, making the most ethical or less harmful decisions, but the... I'm going to have to fall back into two defense positions for that. So one is inauthenticity, right? So existentialism claims that people engage in inauthenticity to hide the truth from themselves. So people definitely, I believe, always are trying to think of themselves as pro-social, but sometimes there's a scenario like you're describing where there's something that they want that makes them happy and they don't know how to think of it as pro-social, so they just don't think about it at all. Like they know it's not good, but whenever it comes up into their head, they just refuse to think about it. They change the subject, so to speak. Right. They don't want to think of themselves as having harmful behaviors. Right. They don't want to think of themselves as being antisocial. And so they just don't think about it at all. But I do think that if you press them on it, so they had to think about it, they would still defend it as being a pro-social behavior. Like, I'm not going to break my family up, which is what a lot of cheaters say, in order for me to have this other person that I want to sleep with. But it's not fair that I should be miserable, right? Which is true, right? So the part of the basic human dignity is the pursuit of happiness. So they shouldn't have to get the pursuit of happiness. That's true. Which in this case for them, the moment feels like the partner, one of the partners. And yet the other partner is connected to this important social construct for them, which is child rearing and family having and shared property. And it would destroy my partner if they found out I was cheating on them. Lines like that. Like, it's better for my partner to be cheated on and not know. Yeah. And, you know, and certain, like, self-referential statements, like, I'm incapable of not cheating. Like, I have to be with this other person. Yeah. But I do think that people are still trying to be pro-social. They're just doing the best they can with a bad lot, sort of the same way that the person who robs people is being pro-social. Like, I was taught that in this world, there's no options for me other than stealing from people, and I still want to be a productive member of my community, have kids, support a wife, etc. And so the one skill set I know how to use is robbery. Like, uh, there's a, the, what's the guy's name? I forget his name, like the Ice Killer or something like that, but there's a big Netflix documentary on him for a while. He's like the guy that is the most recorded kills on record of anyone that's ever been caught who used to be a mafia killer, and his, it doesn't really matter. But the short shot is, he was a family man. He didn't let any of the people that he worked with ever go near his his wife or kids. And he didn't kill anybody for money until he had a wife and kids. He had wife and kids. He could not figure out how to pay for them or give them the kind of life he felt they deserved. And someone offered him $40,000 to kill someone. He said, hey, that worked. <laughs> so we have to know that when it seems like our partners are being shitty partners or that they're maybe making not the best decisions, we have to know that somewhere in their mind they have, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Pro-social intentions. Yeah, absolutely. Right, pro-social intentions. And of course this is the basis of the transformative justice model that we've been talking about so much recently is this idea that if you can tell them in a way that they can hear that they are in fact not being pro-social then you can help them learn to be the kind of pro-social person they want to be and you either get the response of someone going oh my god i want to change or you're lying because they can't internally handle the idea that they're being antisocial. and using that language instead of going you're an asshole, you're mm-hmm. evil, you're not being good mm-hmm. to me, you're right. not being a good person, you're it's gonna be so much more constructive yeah. than that, you know, than than the negative language, than the evil and good language. Right, and in the last pod update, we talked about that because they talked about that. Right. And we talked about how we did an episode on that, which you lost, which was this episode. Yes. And it's the same concept. And we talked about it for a while there, which is nice. So you had that little primer. Yeah. So the, the language is much more constructive because it doesn't terrify someone for me to go, your behavior recently has been unhealthy for me. 
right. is something that most people are willing to hear, you know, and then you can extrapolate that and say, and other people are also saying that they feel your behavior is unhealthy for them. Right. So we would like to work with you and teach you on how to have behaviors that are healthier for us. And if you can't or are unwilling to have those healthier behaviors, and I need to separate myself from you, which is the next part of that, which we always have to come back to, which is don't allow any of the stuff we just said to cause you to endure abusive behaviors. Right. And I think this is actually helpful because I think a lot of people stay in abusive relationships because, and I've heard this sentence, well, he's not a bad guy, so he can't be abusing me. False. Good news, they can be a great guy and still be abusing you. Yeah. And again, if you want to use the language, they can be a great guy and still be horribly unhealthy for you go ahead and do that that's fine but the point is you should give yourself permission to make the choices that meet your needs for health and safety and happiness because there isn't a moral condition built into that right so you are not a bad person for abandoning someone whose negative behaviors or unhealthy behaviors you can't cope with right and you know in the original time that we did this this was about the time (laughs) Where I brought up the fact that fairly recently I had been accused of some harmful behaviors mm-hmm. to one of my partners. And it was incredibly hard to take because of the language. Because mm-hmm. I immediately sure. thought, well, fuck, I'm a bad partner. I'm a bad yeah. partner. I'm a bad person. How did I mm-hmm. not see me doing this? How did mm-hmm. I, you know, wh- wh- where stop and and where did this happen and what caused it and it was really really hard to deal with yeah the first couple days Mm -hmm. after the communicate the communication was given to me because i didn't understand how i could be that person sure when we talked last time and uh, of course this time when we recorded the difference in the language has helped me understand that it doesn't what i did doesn't make me a bad person Mm -hmm. it just means that there's some things that i need to learn how to do better yeah i'd never understood someone who said he was abusive and he didn't mean to be i would always Mm -hmm. call bullshit out on that Mm -hmm. and that's not the case People can absolutely be abusive and not know they're being abusive. Mm -hmm. And of course, they don't know to change those behaviors until someone says, hey, that's abusive. You need to change that behavior. But of course, also, as you just noted, it has to also be said to them in a way that they can hear if they're going to change. By the way, again, if you are subject to abusive behaviors, it is not your job to fix that other person. No. It is not your job to rescue them from being abusive. It is your job to take care of yourself. If you're in an opportunity to tell them and that's helpful, then please. If you feel comfortable with that, great. But that's not your job. You have no moral obligation to do that. You don't have to do that. And do not put yourself in harm's way to do that. Right. Absolutely. Do not put yourself in harm's way to do that. But yeah, right. So you have, you know, if they're going to change, they have to be able to hear it. And that's a part of the Transformative Justice Project as well, or has to be a part of the Transformative Justice Project is developing the language that people can hear and also not villainizing those people so that there is a path to pro-sociality available to them. Mm -hmm. Because again, the founding principle here is everyone wishes to be pro-social. That's at base everyone's goal. So when you're trying to get someone to change, you have to show them how they were not being pro-social, how they were being antisocial or harmful. And then you have to give them a path towards pro-sociality because they will make one if you don't give them one. And the one they make might still be Mm antisocial. So it might look like disbelieving you or creating an us versus them modality where 
their group is the good group and your group is actually the antisocial group or right so there has to be that path or they're not going to be able to make those changes right and not just them but you know maybe they won't and a lot of times the transformative justice model is about the community but the community also has to create those paths because otherwise they're going to reject the idea in general if you create a rule that alienates everybody in the community because they all feel like antisocial people without giving them any paths towards becoming more pro-social, then that's just not going to allow people to adjust to that. Right. And so that's why this this language is so important. One more takeaway. Language like good and bad exists to otherize people. That's its only function. Is that even a real word? That's especially a common term in critical philosophy of race, right? Because the other is the person that you can abuse and control. So to otherize is to make something else into the other, make someone into the other. So this kind of language exists to otherize people. And then we live in a causal universe. So everybody that does anything is at the end of a causal chain. So even though they do have choice, which we can talk about in a different episode, they were always going to make that same choice. They were always going to make the choice that they made. That's the nature of a causal universe. It's a confusing and sort of frustrating thing to think about, but it's true. Uh, It is still important that you act like you have free will. It's still important to pretend. (laughs) It is. It is. Well, and and, I mean, that's what we started this this show with, right? Because we even said existentialism is not a good ethical framework for the whole world. It's only a good ethical framework for relationships because it pretends like you have infinite moral responsibility for the actions you take inside of a relationship. And that is a good place to pretend to act from. But it's important to also, if you're really being true to the beliefs of existentialism, authenticity is the most important one. So if you live in a causal universe that doesn't actually have good and evil or free will in it, then it's important to admit those things, even if you're using a decision-making heuristic that pretends like those exist, right? Because you should act like you have infinite moral responsibility so that you can be the the most pro-social person you can be. But you should understand that you don't so that you don't crush yourself (laughs) with moral guilt and so that you don't become bitter and hateful towards everybody else who doesn't do those things. I think that's my problem. (laughs) The conclusions you come to should be like these things exist, but the emotional content should be like they don't. So someone's harmful to you, and you go, well, I have to get away from this harmful person, but you don't have to feel horrible about it. You just have to get away from that harmful person. But you have to, you do have to get away from them. You can't just be like, well, it's not their fault, so I can't get away from them. Like, no. You need to remove yourself from the situation. Doesn't matter whose fault it is, you gotta get away. I think that hit all the high points that I wanted. So, yeah, next week we'll do free will versus choice. (laughs) So I apologize for two episodes like this in a row, but I realize there isn't really a way to do that, because that's the number one pushback on, on, I know already, on this episode. Well, the universe might be causal, but we have free will. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about that next week. We need to have more what that means <laughs> but this gives you a reason to to listen to another will. one of our podcasts <laughs> all right so as always if you guys like this like share subscribe donate at our website probably poly.com and tune in next time the likes are going up on our facebook by the way we're doing good we're check doing us well. out Please on facebook sharing. on our website mm-hmm. all of that email us thank you so much for listening we get a lot of emails now been great next time guys thanks thanks for listening all right bye bye hey